But it's fascinating to me that as I travel around and speak, and I'm a part of a, a wonderful team of people, there are 80 of us that are based in 15 different countries. The mission of RZIM is helping the thinker believe and helping the believer think. And so we spend a lot of time in colleges and universities and then also in churches, uh, both sides of that. And really bright people, much smarter than I am, that I get to work with. But you know what? When we sit down behind closed doors and all these people writing books and developing big arguments, and you say, why is it that you are a Christian? All of them will come back to talking to a moment when Jesus made sense to them and revealed himself to them. And I would put it this way in my life that I was outloved by Jesus. There are lots of things that I've been good at in life that God allowed me to do. Um, and foolishly, I think in different periods of my life, I thought that I succeeded in these areas because, hey, I'm pretty good at this. But then suddenly you realize that, you know what? The character of who Jesus is sets a standard at a place that you aren't going to be able to pull off on your own. It's so far above what's possible as a human that it's laughable. And then you get yourself in this position of saying, oh, Lord, help me, because I can't do that. And I think that's where the Lord is willing to begin to work with us in that moment. And the disciples of Jesus had a rough go of it. Jesus just kind of mauls you as you kind of interact with him because he's just so different. Uh, and that you just get sucked into who he is and what he's doing. Uh, and it takes a while to untangle exactly what, what's going on. And so we're going to continue here this morning. If you want to pop up on the screen, Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, the continuation. This is right after John the Baptist has been beheaded. And so, and leaving Nazareth, he came and um, that's actually, I don't think the actual passage. Let me read it to you this way. Okay. Um, so this is, uh, and actually I'm reading NIV, so we're all messed up, but it's fine. Um, Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat to a private, by, privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the village and buy themselves some food. So here we are. Yeah, now we're back on the uh, same, same place. So send the multitudes away so that they may go into the villages and buy themselves some food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, and now we're back on the screen. Yep, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is crazy. And it's one of those things that you can just, you know, maybe you've been in the church for a while or you grew up in, you know, Christian household and you just read through this like, oh, yeah, that's what. What? And I just read it kind of casually there in a nice, soft voice and we're all. What is going on here? And so this evening, I want us to look at uh, five things that I would like to pick out when it comes to the greatness of Jesus, five elements of Jesus's life and who he is that are made known to us here in a way that are just fascinating and, again, captivating for me about who Jesus is. 
And the first part of it is this. Oftentimes when we look at this passage, we think about him feeding the 5,000 as the most miraculous part of it. And don't get me wrong, that is a miraculous element. But there's some other things here that are worth just slowing down and working through the passage slowly here to get our heads wrapped around. Now, there's lots of discussion of why is it that Jesus goes off to a solitary place when he hears what has happened to John the Baptist. And some say, okay, well, you know, now that people are, who are identifying with Jesus are getting whacked in the head, um, Jesus is withdrawing a little bit. He's working in the margins, and that's true. He does do that. There's, he's out in the more solitary places from here on out through the conclusion of his ministry. But what about this one? What about, I mean, think about it. The, your closest ministry partner, who's actually also your cousin, gets beheaded. How are you going to respond to that? I would be grieving. Grief would be a good response to something like that happening. And so maybe it isn't that Jesus is hiding from Herod as much as he just, he needs some space. He needs to go for a little stroll in the countryside to zoom out and just catch his breath and think about this, right? Not that it surprises him, but he's manifesting his human characteristics here of he's going off to remote place. That makes sense to me. And also the death of John the Baptist is a little bit of a reminder for him of what's coming for him. And so it's a, big, it's a big weight that Jesus is carrying here, thinking about the death of John the Baptist and what's coming up from him. And so this is what's amazing to me. Imagine that you want to be by yourself, and you show up at a place to be by yourself, and who should you find there but 12,000 of your not-so-closest friends? Uh, this says that there are 5,000 men there. Some people say that maybe is up to 20,000 when you add women and children in there. Let's just go with 12,000 just for the sake. It's not important, but let's just go with 12,000. So you want to get away? Think about that. You really need a break from work. Life's been rough. You go on vacation, and who's there? All the rest of you. And, I mean, you probably like each other, but maybe not that much. And so that's the fascinating thing here to start off this idea of Jesus withdrawing, he's going across a lake that has a 30-mile uh, circumference. So, yeah, the, the crowds following him definitely had to truck it around there to get to him. But Jesus is always on. He's always interrupted. And later he is going to find some quiet time to himself. But look at this. When I, if, if I'm putting myself in the place of Jesus and this happens to me, Jesus gets out of the boat, he landed, he saw the crowd, and he had compassion on them. At his lowest point, at his desire to get away, he lands, finds a multitude of people, and this is his first response is compassion. Is compassion your first response? I have to be honest, it's not mine always. This is a great thing of Jesus. This is great compassion to you being the one who needs to be ministered to probably, and all of a sudden it turns around and he's going to preach for a whole day to a group of people that came to be ministered to by him. And so in this moment, he switches from his idea to what the people need around him. Jesus shows us a God of phenomenal compassion. He looks at them, he has compassion, and he heals their sick. And if we're not careful, this is just, you know, kind of standard Jesus operating procedure. I was reading the story about Jesus to my children. They're six, four, and two. And there's, I forget which one it was, the blind man or something. And, uh, and I said it to my kids, and what do you think Jesus does next? And they said, he healed him. I was like, that's right. And they're like, yeah, that's what Jesus does. <laughs> like, well, actually, kind of, you're right. It's sort of what he does. But he has phenomenal compassion on this group of people. And it's important here that we recognize there in verse 14 that they're off in a, in a remote place. And then as evening approaches and comes along, the disciples says to him, hey, this is a remote place. And if I was Jesus, I would have been like, yes, that's the point. 
I was trying to go to a remote place. It's not my problem that all of these people followed me out here. That's their problem. It's a, it's a desert, a, a deserted place, a, a remote place, and it's already getting late. And so they tell him, send the crowds away. And this just goes to show that Jesus is preaching, and then there's an interest in food. So all the way back to the beginning of Christian preaching, there's always been this struggle between the length of the sermon and when you're going to eat next. Uh, I know that's never happened in any churches around here probably, but in other places in the world they struggle with this. But here we find good validation of this beginning uh, very early on. And so the disciples um, come up with a plan here, and they say to Jesus, hey, here's the situation, and we've got it figured out. Send the crowds away so that they can go into the villages and buy some food for themselves. Now, that does seem like maybe the best option there, but you have to ask yourself, would that have even worked? Say you did have a crowd of, oh, 12,000 people trucking along, and you have some little remote fishing villages or something. Is that even a viable option? Just send them down to the town with 200 people, and those 12,000, I'm sure they have enough food for 12,000 people at that little fishing hut over there. I mean, <laughs> their plan A isn't a great plan A, is all I'm pointing out to you here. And so I don't know if it really would have worked or they really could have handled it, but Jesus does the unthinkable and flips the script on them and says what? You give them something to eat. <laughs> he's a God of great compassion, but he's also one of great expectation. You give them something to eat. What are they going to do with that? And they say, hey, you send them away. And he says, no, you give. And what we see here is that Jesus has options and knows possibilities that we can't even conceptualize. The disciples didn't come to Jesus and said, hey, we've got a great idea. Let's see out of 12,000 people if we can you know, round up five loaves of bread and then you multiply them. That was not even on their scale. That wasn't even their mind of thinking. I mean, now we know this because it's already happened, but that wasn't plan B. Um, well, if they can't make it in the village, you do something. And they are stuck here. And what do they really have? This is the story of my life. <laughs> what is it that you really have? And they say, hey, guess what? You know, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, John tells us that they were barley loaves, which is not high-quality bread, and that they got it from a little kid. Okay, we have 12 grown men here who took five little pieces of bread from a kid, and that's what they've got. I don't know what the administrative assistant was doing in this whole process, but this is not strategic planning for a little camping trip with Jesus. They've got nothing except for a little bit that they took from a kid. <laughs> Do you ever find yourself in a situation like that? I've got nothing. And we're going to act and grin like we've got something going on. But what does Jesus say? One line. Bring them here to me. Bring me what you've got. He is a God of great expectation. He is of great compassion, but he's also realistic. And so he looks at my life and says, Rittenhouse, <laughs> bring them here to me. And he looks at your life and what you've been given, and he says, bring them here to me. It's a simple line. And then there's another interesting thing here is that in this whole idea of disciples say, disciples say, send them away. And Jesus says, tell them to sit down. And then he takes the bread, and he looks, and he gives thanks, and he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples to give to the people. 
we can probably guess, maybe, I mean, there were a lot of, uh, in the Mishnah, in the, in the other, um, in Jewish tradition, there are 18 benedictions that can be said over prayer. One of those is, blessed art thou who bringest forth bread from the earth. That would have been a traditional, I don't know if Jesus probably didn't say that based off what was about to happen. Who knows? But this idea of him taking and breaking and multiplying. And there are some references to something sort of like this. In 1 Kings 17, you have the whole idea of Elijah and the widow, and you remember her ingredients don't run out so she can keep making bread through the famine. In 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha feeds 100 prophets with 20 barley loaves. Now, and that reminds us that a barley loaf is not a big chunk of bread. If it was miraculous that 20 of them fed 100 people, um, there's, there's that kind of thing going on here. It's a little fragment of bread. And then just because of some of my quirks in my background, I started thinking about this and saying, what's really happening here? So let's assume that you have a crowd of 12,000 people and that you need 166 calories to satiate an adult who hasn't eaten for the day. That's probably a little bit low. If it's me, I need more than that. But let's just go with 666 calories. And considering that one horsepower is 178.11 calories per second, Jesus looks up into heaven, gives thanks, and generates 45,000 horsepower. That's 33 33 million watts. That's the equivalent energy. I mean, we're talking Hoover Dam numbers here of Jesus just like, got this. Calories out of thin air. Awesome. And now, this, has, this is not the point of this passage, is to calculate how many calories and the energy that Jesus can calculate. I've just had to throw that in there because some of us might be thinking, you know what, this couldn't have happened. This is physically impossible. This is a violation of the laws of the conservation of matter. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. We know that. Every single physics class you've ever taken or will take will tell you that. So what happens here? Well, it's fascinating because actually if you look at the law of the conservation of energy, it says that the total energy of an isolated system remains constant. And I think what Jesus does over and over again is remind us that we are not in an isolated system. There is energy and there is information that is available to you that is beyond this tight-knit little globe and ball. Is it a closed system or is it an open system? Can information and energy come from the outside into it? And so Jesus isn't violating the law of, you know, conservation of energy. Those things still stand. It's just pointing out to us that it's not an isolated system that we live in. A God who can create the universe out of nothing doesn't really even have to blink to rustle up a couple thousand fish. I mean, it's not a big deal, right? If it's not a closed system. Now, as interesting as that is, I'll give you what my least favorite interpretation of this passage is. And this is the sharing hypothesis. And so I've actually heard people preach this before. You can find this in some commentaries that actually what happened was that Jesus didn't multiply the loaves and the fish, but the little boy gives of his, you know, supper or whatever it is that his mom packs for him. And everybody, the whole crowd is just wowed by the generosity of this little boy. And they all pull out the food that they've been squirreling away under their robes and share it with each other. And when everybody shares, then there's enough to go around. That, to me, is as implausible as Jesus just making the fish. Um, and I won't go too much farther into that, but if you're looking for a really not you know, phenomenal description of it, that's about the best that other people can come up with, of saying, well, Jesus was just a good role model for us, and the little boy's generosity sparks that type of generosity in us. And so that can... Anyway, that's the other one that's out there. And so we see a God of great compassion, of great expectation, but also of phenomenal power. Jesus has great power, has compassion, 
has expectation and has power. And you know what? He doesn't make just a little bit like, oh, I'll give them enough to get them back home. He says they were satisfied. They were well fed. He's a God of abundance. He doesn't give them just enough to get by. He's, I guess you could say, he is the master of making do with what you've got. Uh, but he doesn't go beyond what's necessary. It's not a, a big show. Uh, he didn't create the energy straight into their bodies or anything like that. And in fact, he gives it to his disciples to give to the people. I think that's interesting that he invites them into the ministry of what he's doing. They've got nothing. He gives them something in order that they might give it to other people to pass it along. And so what's the point of this? What's the whole thing that's going on here? Is this just to, hey, let's just, you know, kind of prove uh, why is this here? Is it kind of the thing of like, well, if you look at the end of chapter 13, there's this whole rejection of Jesus, and then John the Baptist gets beheaded, and team Jesus is looking like they're on the downhill, and then, whoa, you know, over time, Jesus comes back, and this party isn't over. He's still got the touch. You know, I don't, I don't think that's it. But think with me for just a second. So they pick up 12 baskets of, of leftovers here. And when you get 12 and you get the Jewish people together, you're starting to think, okay, well, there's a connection here, 12 tribes of Israel, that whole thing going on. And then there's this focus on bread. And actually here in Matthew, it just talks about him breaking the bread. And, and so why is, why is the focus just on the bread rather than on the fish for Matthew? And then you start asking yourself, has there ever been another time when there were a group, a, a large group of Jewish people that were in an isolated remote place and had no food and received bread from heaven. The Exodus, yeah, this has happened before. And so I think Matthew is recording this for us with a little bit of a wink, wink to it, right? Of like, you get it? This is not just another prophet. This is just not another dude who hopped off the boat and healed some people. There's something much bigger going on here. In this, Jesus shows us his true identity, gives us a hint toward there's something much bigger going on here than meets the eye. This is not a closed system. I've got something to show you that's even greater that you can't even, you wouldn't even be able to make this stuff up if you wanted to. This is not an option that you have in mind, what it is that I'm about to do and who I am. But so as we start to see the, the character of God unfolded and made known to us in the person of Jesus, that gets tricky then because he has that expectation for me, and then I have to start wrestling with, well, what is the level of, like, how much of what it is that Jesus expects of me can I actually do? How far does that go? And that's a big question that a lot of people have about, well, how are Christians actually supposed to behave? What are we supposed to do here? I was thinking about this passage, and I was pumping gas at a gas station, and this guy came up to me who obviously had some disabilities, we were having trouble communicating, and it was just awkward. And I was trying to be kind and talk to him, and I thought, man, this is a messed up situation. And the Christ-like thing here is Jesus had compassion. And I was thinking, you know, the main difference is, is that I can't heal this guy. That's kind of frustrating. Um, but then I was thinking, so what is it that Jesus says, bring them here to me? What is it that, I, well, I have a right hand. I can say, hey, my name's Nathan. Maybe I just need to start with that. And so how do I take this idea of what it is that Jesus is showing about who God is and convert that into how it is that I ought to behave? What are the disciples learning in this? And this, maybe we can tie in here a broader question about how is it that Christians are supposed to behave or why do Christians do the weird things that they do? And zoom and scroll this back a little bit to a bigger philosophical question about how is it that you decide what the right thing to do is as a follower of Jesus? 
And if you'll let me for a moment go back to a little bit of Greek philosophy and think about something called Euthyphro's Dilemma. Uh, Euthyphro was a young man. He's on his way to court to turn his father in for something his father had done. Uh, he runs into Socrates. Socrates starts asking him questions about why he's doing all of this. He ends up saying something along the lines of because it's pious. And then Socrates kind of spins that around, and we get this kind of a consolidated form of the argument goes like this, where Socrates is asking Euthyphro, he's saying, because Euthyphro grounds what he's doing based off of the will of the gods. And so Socrates says to him, do the gods, is something good because the gods command it, or do the gods command it because it's good? So, is something good because the gods command it, or do the gods command it because it's good? And that's called Euthyphro's dilemma. Which one is it? And there's some certain problems to that because if God, if something is good just because God commands it, then God could change his mind whenever he wanted and then kind of be willy-nilly as far as morality goes. And on the other hand, if there's a standard of goodness that transcends God, then God has to play by a set of rules that are above him, which doesn't make him very much of a God, right? And so Christians historically have rejected that and said, actually, that's a false dilemma. God does not just randomly make commands, nor does he have any type of barrier or limitation that goes above him. Rather, he commands based off of his character and nature. The way that God is, is the foundation for the way that we ought to be. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God, that we would reflect his nature here in creation. And Jesus is the perfection of that image, right? And that's the goal for us to be conformed to the likeness of the Son. And so Jesus shows up and shows us the character and the nature of God and teaches us a way of living that isn't just random. There were 613 laws in the Old Testament, and Jesus comes up and gives a whole bunch of other ones, but it wasn't so that we could out-Jew Jews. It was so that we could reflect and reveal the character of who God is. So why do we love our enemies? Well, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How do we go the second mile? Because we serve a God who's abundant and lavish. And so you see that the character of God, the isness of God, provides the oughtness for humanity. The isness of God provides the oughtness for humanity. If you really want that in a complicated way, you can put it grammatically and say that the divine indicative is the predicate of the human imperative. Then everybody's confused. But you know this is true if you've read the New Testament because you complete, complete these sentences with me. Be holy as I am holy. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Forgive as I have forgiven you. And on and on you see the character of God being the reference point for how it is that Christians are to behave. And so the fullness of that is expressed to us in the person of Jesus. Now, as a little side note, bracket here, I love that line of thinking because then you can take a question about, well, why do Christians do X, Y, Z? Say, you know what, that's a fascinating question. I think it really has to do with the character and nature of God. And well, how do we know what the character and nature of God is like? Well, we start looking at passages like Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 where God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. He's the image of the invisible God. So we see the character of God revealed in the person of Jesus. And all of a sudden, we've gone from a question about Christian behavior to talking about Jesus. <laughs> awesome. Back to where we're going here. Jesus' expectation for what it is that we're able to do. What is it about his nature? And can I do that? Well, not on your own you can't do that. Not on my own I can't do that. And that's just called being human. But in John, he talks about, you should be glad that I'm going because I'm going to spend the Holy Spirit to you. And so we're talking about uh, following Jesus that's enabled by the Holy Spirit. And so let me line out for you here the things that I see that are fascinating to me and captivating to me about the person of Jesus that are things that I also want to work on in my own life. And so it starts off, we've gone through this, that he's a God of great compassion. I've got some work to do on that one. I can be quick to judge, especially when I'm tired and hungry. Hangry and compassion don't go together. Number two, he has great expectations. Jesus actually, I don't, I don't, 
I don't know, how do you read this? Is Jesus joking when he says that to them? You give them something to eat? I got you. No. Um, I think that he expects us as people who are walking within the will of God to be able to do miraculous things. I think that's there. He has great power. But you know what the other thing is that's showed here in this is that he has phenomenal hospitality. Jesus is a great host. Have you notice that? The people who he's trying to get rid of show up, and he tells them to sit down, and he teaches them, and he feeds them, and he has compassion on them. And I want to get better at hospitality. That's something I want to do. And I read, I forget where it was recently, somebody made a very helpful distinction of the difference between entertainment and hospitality. They said, when you entertain somebody in your home, you get everything polished and clean, and you clean all those things that you've never really cleaned other than when people are coming over, and you get everything organized, and you're giving people the Instagram version of your life. That's entertaining, where you've got everything. Hospitality is, and you're like, hey, you know, it's a wreck. The kids did this, and there's Play-Doh stuck in the outlets, but come on over for lunch, you know? And you're letting them see how it is that you truly are, how you really live your life. And Jesus is, you see the difference there? That's a big difference, entertaining and hospitality. And I think it's one of the things that as our culture gets worse at actual human interactions, the church is going to need to shine out of being able to do that, of saying, come on over. Yeah, we'll kick the laundry basket, uh, you know, behind the door as you walk in. But um, this is how we are. And Jesus does it. This is how I am. But with Jesus, when he starts to show how he is, you're like, whoa, this is bigger than I thought. It's a wonderful and a fascinating invitation. And then you know what? There's great compassion, there's great expectation, there's great power, there's great hospitality. But the other one that this does for me is this is great comfort. This is great comfort to me. Because you know what? The disciples had only half of a plan. And Jesus had an option that they couldn't even see. And that's comforting to me. And it might be comforting for you too because you might be in a situation in life this evening where you can see no possible outcome for the situation that you're in. And you can't even make up what God's going to do next. But he's got a plan. He's got a great power. That helps me a lot. And so I'm trying to transition and have been for some time my prayers and difficulty into saying, Lord, it's going to be fascinating to see how you get me out of this one. Uh, and so in that prayer, they're simultaneously like, I've, I don't have a clue. I've got, I don't even have a kid to still fish off of. Um, I've got nothing. But I believe that you can fix this. And so I'm going to be faithful to what you've asked me to do until you do the next thing, because I believe you can do it. Lord, it's going to be interesting to see how you get me out of this one. And I want to live in that posture of knowing that Jesus has options for us that we can't even dream of. That's a fun way to live. Great compassion, great expectation, great power, great hospitality, and great comfort. We talked some about that expectation, about he, how he actually demands action. But on a, on a bigger thing here to zoom out a little bit is that one of the things I, kept, I keep saying about how Jesus fascinates me is that he won't really let us be apathetic about who he is. The way he operates forces us to decide. What are you going to do with this? Did Jesus do this or did he not do it? Is he who he claimed to be or is he not? It's one or the other. Uh, there's a, a concept in, in philosophy called Hobson's Choice. Hobson was a guy in Cambridge, England, way back in the day, who had a stable with 40 horses in it. Um, and so if you needed to borrow a horse, you went and got one from Hobson. It was like Uber, but way different. Um, and so you went to his stable to get a horse, and you looked, and there were 40 stalls of horses, and you're like, man, there are a lot of options here for horses. 
But there was a rule at Hobson's stable that you had to pick the horse that was closest to the door. And the reason for that was, is like everybody would pick the same three horses and those horses would get worn out. And so he cycled the horses through. And so you could have, it looked like you had an option of 40 different horses, but you had one choice. And so this is common sense. We call it take it or leave it. Leave it to philosophy to make a complicated idea, like simple idea, like take it or leave it into some sort of bigger thing. But you take it or leave it. Those are your options. It's not 40 choices. It's two. You can take it or you can leave it. And Jesus does that. He doesn't give us 40 options of how to interpret him. He's like, I am who I claim to be or I'm not. Take it or leave it. If he was lived in our time, he might be like, it is what it is, people. Um, you need to decide. And part of the reason that maybe we don't is that we, we live in a great time of apathy, I think, on a lot of important things, and people kind of lament this idea of apathy. And I got to thinking about it, and is, is it really true that people are apathetic? Um, what about this? Can despair masquerade as apathy? Where it's not that you don't care, it's just that you think if you do put any effort into it, it's not going to make a difference anyway. If you're apathetic, Jesus will slap you out of that one. But if you're in despair, Jesus will help you out of that one. I'm saying, no, I will enable you to do this, to make a decision. Change is possible. The church struggles to meet apathy, but it's a master of speaking about despair because we're talking about a God who reaches into the midst of chaos and creates order. So you have to decide. Who is Jesus? What are you going to do with him? And then after I acknowledge who he is and I've confessed Jesus as Lord, and I've submitted my life to him and rejoiced and delighted in the salvation that he gives me, then there's still, yet he doesn't just save us and then leave us. <laughs> he, he has his disciples and then they come and he says, bring them here to me. And so I guess this is the question that we have to land on here is this one, yes or no question. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Number two. What is he asking of you? I, and I can't answer that right now. This is, I mean, there are, there are broad things that are general that he asks every Christian to do. What's he asking of you? Think about that. Lord, what do you want me to do? Number three, what has he given you in order that you can give it to somebody else? Is the blessing that you have for you so you can feel special? Take my blessing gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples could have said, sweet, we've got enough bread for the rest of our lives. No, the point was for them to give it. And so what is it that God has given you that's actually for you to give? I like this idea of Jesus as a host. And the reason I like it is because I think it's biblical. Um, but as we were singing and I was thinking through this whole thing of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the hospitality that he offers, I was just thinking of, you know, even in John chapter 14, this is where he's talking about don't let your hearts be troubled, trust in God, trust also in me, and my Father's house are many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. That's a hospitality passage, is it not? I'm going to prepare a place, and I'm going to invite you into it. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. I'm working on a party. You're invited. And you know how to get there. And John chapter 14 is fun because the disciples take turns raising their hands and saying they don't know stuff. And so first it's Thomas's turn. 
Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Google. Uh, no, we don't, how, how are we going to get there? And Jesus answered and said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Not only is he the host of the party, but he's the way to get there. Yeah, didn't see that one coming, did you? The disciples didn't get it. If you really knew me, you would know my father as well. For now on, you have known him and you have seen him. And isn't this a fascinating thing that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Because in that statement, he's saying, you know what? Truth is not neutral. Truth has an agenda. It's not enough just to know neat things. It's not enough just to know that Jesus is a great God of compassion. A great. It's not about just knowing. The purpose of truth is to put you in relationship with your heavenly father. It has an agenda. Jesus has an agenda. It's not a hidden bias that he has. This is the point of, of who he is and what he does. It's an invitation into a banquet. Read to the end of the Bible. What is it? The wedding feast of the Lamb. We're talking about food, party, hospitality. Jesus said, I'm going to get that ready. Come on. I don't know how to get there. I got this. Look at me. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And so there's a phenomenal invitation that God gives to us and extends to us through the person of Jesus. And once you start thinking of Jesus as a host, it makes sense of all these uh, parables and stories that Jesus was telling about, um, you know, about the, the king holding the banquet and the wedding feast and the people say, oh, I can't come, you know, I've married a wife or I bought a cow or a field or whatever, and they make excuses or people who are invited to the uh, banquet but don't wear the right wedding clothes of God being a God of invitation, a God of hospitality who loves and invites and reconciles and wants us to be with him. Now, the problem is, is that you can't just walk into the presence of a holy God and live. I mean, I like what Dallas Willard said. I'm fully convinced that God will allow everyone into heaven who can stand it. Um, what makes you think that you could live through that? There has to be something that God has to do to you first before you can handle the presence of God, and he does that too. And so not only is he the host who invites, he's also the one who prepares us and gives us the garment, as it were, of righteousness to come into his presence. This is an inviting God. And here in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, this is just Jesus getting warmed up. It's just a little, a little fragment, a little glimpse, a foretaste, as the old hymns would say, a foretaste of glory divine. Just a little flash of this is the character of the God that we're talking about, who invites people, who has compassion, who has great expectation for his followers, who has great power and can give great power and give good gifts and invites us and comforts us. And see, that, that, that link there, it's in John 2. Don't let your hearts be troubled. There's the comfort. I've got a plan. And then you guys got a bad plan. No plan, no fish, but I've got a plan. And he invites us into that. And so I think this evening as we um, close out our time in prayer and in worship and reflection is that we're left with that of the invitation sent. We know God can do it. Jesus can do it on a tiny scale. He can do it on a your size scale too. And so that's the invitation. That's why I'm fascinated by the person of Jesus is he's just seems like he understands all of reality. Surprise, he made it. Um, and he invites us into that bigger picture, into a grander understanding of what it means for us to be in relationship with our Heavenly Father. And he can do great things. And so may that be a word of comfort to you. And let's respond to him in prayer. And then uh, Brandon will come up and, and lead us in a, in a further time of reflection. But look, join with me. Father, I want to profess tonight that I'm 
want to be a disciple of Jesus. And I want to respond to the invitation not only to come and to follow you and to learn of you, but also into the grandeur of what it is that you've prepared for those of us who are willing to respond to that invitation. Would you, by your Spirit, reveal to us tonight, those of us who are willing, what it is that you would have us do with our lives, that you've equipped us to, that you will empower us to do, that we can't even foresee? Would you make that clear to us in a way that we would uh, live a life of satisfaction and of service to others by taking what it is that you give to us and distributing it to your people? Give us clarity on these things. Guide us by your Spirit. We can't do this on our own. And so for those of us who need to respond for the first time, may we say yes to that invitation. And for those of us who need to uh, hear from you, would you reveal yourself to us? And for those of us who have heard you speak but have been resistant to act, would you rupture that hesitancy in our lives, invite us into the fullness of what it is that you have for us? And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.